You're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. To find out more about today's topic or check out some of our other episodes, along with maps, images, documents, and other materials related to the history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East, visit us on the web at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. This is another installment of our series in the history of science, uh, Ottoman and otherwise. That series is uh, focused on the Ottoman Empire, the Middle East, the Islamic world, but is more broadly concerned with sort of what we might call a non-Western history of science and different ways of studying that. Our guest today on the podcast is somebody who's actually appeared in that series before a couple years ago. Uh, Edna Bonham, she's a PhD candidate in the program in history of science at Princeton University. Edna, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So for those who have been following the podcast uh, across the years now, uh, you know that our guests are comprised of a, a wide variety of scholars ranging from distinguished professors to uh, less distinguished grad students <laughs> like ourselves. And uh, Edna was uh, one of our, uh, you know, Edna and I recorded together a few years ago in Paris when she was just starting out on her research uh, in France uh, on, on the history of plague in the Mediterranean, and particularly North Africa, Egypt, uh, and Tunisia. Edna, I wanted to ask you, you know, last time I saw you, you were just starting out, like we said, at uh I think BNF and La Courneuve and these places in Paris. And I know you've been on a lot of uh, uh, research trips since then to develop this project of, uh, to study plague in Egypt and Tunisia. What are some of the, where are some of the uh, different archives and libraries that you've worked at? So um, I guess first I should probably describe what the project is focusing mm-hmm. on at this moment and its current iteration. Uh, at the moment, I'm mostly focusing on plague through the advantages of slavery, trade, mm-hmm. and death and how those um, uh, issues were impacted by uh, various uh, epidemics that emerged in the 18th century. Um, in order to have gotten to the point of kind of answering that, those questions or trying to engage with those topics, um, it really um, was, uh, I was really beholden to kind of look at archives that might have had a little bit of information on each of those subjects. So looking at commercial records in France, which was mm-hmm. very important, diplomatic records yeah. um, in the context of Britain, uh, where I've also looked at records, um, looking at the East India Company um, mm-hmm. Office of Records, where uh, there were people who were based in Egypt who had to coordinate trade between between uh-huh. uh, India and uh, Europe. And then also in the North African context, um, in Egypt, uh, looking at uh, plague treatises and tracts at the uh, Egyptian National Archive, mm-hmm. as well as the Egyptian National Library. Mm-hmm. In the Tunisian context, um, I also had a chance to look at um, uh, documents and particularly legal registers um, at the Egyptian uh, at the Tunisian National mm-hmm. uh, Archives and the uh, Bibliothèque Nationale de Tunisie um, as well. Um, I tried to uh, incorporate a bit more material culture into the uh, dissertation. So another kind of archive that's incorporated because of the death element is the cemetery. Oh, wow. So um, looking at um, Al-Adolfa in, in Egypt and particularly in Cairo and how uh, the memorialization around uh, uh, those who had capital or some kind of money yeah. uh, was centered, uh, as well as in Tunis looking at... Um, 
one of the major uh, cemeteries there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so cemeteries are um, part of the archival process uh, for my dissertation yeah. as well. Well, I mean, that's very fascinating. You have, you know, really a, a range of sources. Uh, as we know from other recent scholarship on plague in the Mediterranean, plague is almost an inherently like transnational or we could say global subject due to the way it, it spreads and the, and the concerns of uh, early modern empires that uh, controlling it, but also when you try to study it through the lens of uh, the global slave trade, then we're getting into an even wider uh, source base. I think it's fascinating to bring together records ranging from the East India Company, the standard colonial archives, all the way down to these, uh, as you said, the material culture that's uh, preserved in the uh, cemeteries of uh, Egypt and Tunisia. I'm really looking forward to reading about some of that. Um, well, today's topic is actually going to focus, I think, on your your research into. Uh, I guess what we could we could call them uh, amateur uh, scientists of the 18th century who are living in Egypt. We'll get to those in just a minute. Um, but first, uh, maybe you could talk about a few other aspects of the, of this um, project. And in particular, I'm wondering about uh, the the link between uh, the trans-Saharan slave trade and the plague. Like, what do, what are you seeing as this as the link in your study between these two subjects? The the issue with uh, the bubonic plague in general when it emerged in the 18th century, like, for example, in Tunis in 1784, uh, mm-hmm. there was a, a epidemic that emerged. And in that context, actually, uh, the several uh, figures such as Abbe Poré and others indicated that the this um, bubonic plague emerged actually from the Levantine uh, region. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, in that context, slaves were not necessarily seen as vectors of uh, that particular epidemic. In the Egyptian context, the story is a bit different in that um, for the 1781 plague and the 1791 plague, um, there were various accounts in which uh, people uh, assumed that slaves coming from uh, Damascus, black mm-hmm. slaves, uh, as well as those coming from uh, sub-Saharan uh, Africa uh, were contributing to this uh, epidemic. So how do you deal with this? Because, you know, marginalized people in history are always blamed for these kind of inexplicable epidemics. Uh, it's nothing unique uh, to, you know, discursively place the the blame for a, a pestilence, so to speak, on uh, slaves or other kind of uh, subaltern actors. But at the same time, these are uh, bodies that are being trafficked around. And so they are, as in our understanding of disease, possible vectors of disease. How do you, how do you navigate uh, this, you know, delicate line of trying to understand the cause of disease while also being aware of the, the narratives that are in play? Well, first I try to unpack who or what was considered a slave uh, in this particular context mm-hmm. and the different categories of slavery, whether it's like Abd, Mamluk, um, those who mm-hmm. are just servants, Khadam, and try to un- understand what their position in society is and to what extent they were experienced some form of marginality, mm-hmm. uh, whether they were affiliated with the military, domestic servants, or something else. And then I try to unpack, okay, what were the, what were the kind of social dynamics by which... Um, these people might have been considered, um, uh, you know, disease con- um, vectors of contagion, etc. And why would that have been the case? Um, uh, what was who was writing that they um, were spreading the disease, and to what extent does it, might that have to do with other like pre-existing um, uh, anti-black racist notions? If it's yeah. um, tor- targeted towards uh, black slaves versus um, towards Mamluks, like is this because of a, a military kind of? Uh, 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 
attack on someone who might be um, coordinating the rule. So I, I really try to unpack that as much as I can. Because mm-hmm. um, at the, at, at, there isn't really a kind of way in which I can verify indeed who was yeah, the source. Exactly. Um, I'm not Jon Snow in the 19th century looking at the cholera <laughs> epidemic in London. So it's, it makes it difficult to really trace the source. And for me, it's not about tracing the source, but mm-hmm. the discourse around bodies and like what you're describing, like this transnational, trans um, mobile population. Um, and, you know, depending on the positionality of the person, uh, there are times where, uh, you know, Europeans are blamed. There are times, like mm-hmm. I said, in the Tunisian context where people coming from the Levant are blamed uh, mm-hmm. for are spreading the disease. It's not always clear. I remember in Nancy Gallagher's work, she said that there were instances where the Ottomans blamed, for example, nomads for spreading disease. They're also a marginalized group, right? So you have this, it's all, it's never, you have this tension that it's always these, these outsiders who are the source of the disease in many of these accounts. Yes, indeed, um, whether it's the context in Nancy Gallagher's work on medicine and power in Tunisia, mm-hmm. and, uh, or even looking at um, uh, the Middle Ages and the 14th century in Europe, uh, those who are uh, considered to be um, on the edges of society, yeah. whether it's based, based on being uh, Jewish, a uh, woman who practices um, uh, witchcraft or some or, or being yeah. black, you could be seen as potentially spreading a disease. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, there's multiple ways to approach the, the history of disease. We face this tension, you know, you have some strain of scholarship, the work of William McNeil and many of those who have followed trying to sort of use our knowledge today to reconstruct what happened with diseases that were understood very differently in the past. But then you have this history of science look on things, which is all about understanding the social and cultural context of practices of science, of, uh, of understanding the context of production of knowledge and how um, also how that knowledge changes through historical experience. Yeah. And historians of science, like, for example, in Leviathan and the Air Pump, I very much draw from uh, Simon Schaefer, uh, Schaefer and uh, Stephen Schaefer's mm-hmm. work on um, kind of Boyle and Hobbes and their debates and how they were contesting um, issues about uh, like within physics and mathematics and there's a way in which now if we tried to interpret their materials now we would be like oh well um, Boyle was right obviously but mm-hmm. it wasn't clear back then and so yeah. trying to understand people on their own terms yeah. in the kind of scientific language that they had and the tools that they had is is quite important um, for historians of science and getting the social clues the, the political economy um, mm-hmm. letters etc to, yeah. to make that story um, clear is, is, is quite important yeah So you mentioned uh, you were just talking about studying uh, sort of knowledge on its own terms in the context within which it's being produced. And I think that leads well into the this discussion that we're going to have today about a chapter of your dissertation, uh, a chapter that for um, historians of science, I think will be uh, very fascinating um, in that it, it deals with um, subjects that maybe aren't always the main focus of histories of science, of histories of science, because they aren't exactly scientists. You're you're studying um, Europeans who are living in Egypt during the ni- uh, during the 18th century, during these uh, plague events, who are trying to make sense of uh, what's going on using the methods of inquiry of their time and also an eclectic source of like theories about the world. 
So you're dealing with two figures, John Antes, who is a, uh, let's say, Anglo-American uh, missionary living in Egypt, who actually corresponded with Benjamin Franklin. So there's, a, there's an interesting side story there. And then um, a merchant, uh, George Baldwin. Uh, so both of these men have, have, written, have, have written about their ideas about disease and plague while in Egypt. Let, let's start with Antes. What's his story? What's his connection to the subject? How did he uh, interpret uh, the disease environment he encountered in this uh, foreign place of Cairo? Okay, so John Antes was a Moravian missionary who had been born in colonial America uh, in 1740s. And he was born in present-day Pennsylvania, had went through a kind of... Uh, uh, strict religious training through the Moravian Church, which uh, at the time had a kind of a strict interpretation of the Bible and would uh, try to, in its best capacity, um, uh, set up these missionaries in different parts of the world. Um, and uh, John Antis in particular, he wasn't just a missionary, he actually composed music for the church. And so there was a way in which um, his music and connecting to uh, like a kind of divine uh, chorale um, uh, performance was, was quite important for him, uh, both before and after he went to Egypt. He went to Egypt um, in the 1770s, uh, mostly based in Cairo, but was also spent some time about um, uh, in Upper Egypt, present-day Aswan, and trying to connect to Coptic Christians, etc., and uh, learning Arabic during t- the time. So while he was in in, in Cairo, uh, he witnessed uh, uh, the 1781 plague and, and really tried to assess what was the origin of this, etc., and trying to figure out how does one cure the plague or prevent it from happening and and how did he get involved in trying to figure out how does one cure cure the plague like sure everybody who gets sick tries to find a way to get better right Mm -hmm. uh and tries to understand things but how does he get into this discussion of history of science so the way he goes about it is a he, he actually um indicated um that the origin of the plague it came from a Jewish merchant and two black female slaves. Mm, so this um, typical, you know. yeah. And so there was a way in which the, the kind of source of the plague was uh, com- like, this wasn't verified by any of the other mm-hmm. sources I looked at, but that was his theory on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was one thing that he did. Another thing is that he walked around in his community, supposedly, mm-hmm. which was the merchant community in Cairo at the time and uh, try to see who, got it and who didn't. Mm-hmm. And according to his observations and letters, um, merchants who had kind of um, conducted a self-quarantine, that is to mm-hmm. say staying inside their homes did not cap- capture the plague, whereas those who kind of went about the city were more susceptible. Mm-hmm. Uh, another theory that he had, and this was in conversation with uh, another religious group that was based there, the I guess the Franciscan Brotherhood, mm-hmm. that uh, apparently drinking brandy uh, was a cure or a potential uh, um, treatment for the plague. And yeah. so his uh, kind of theory about the disease is mm-hmm. very much a kind of... Uh, observational everyday life trying to get a sense of what was happening however his his outside of his like kind of um witnessing of the play um in proper cairo proper he had um uh, theorized that the quarantine system or a kind of mass quarantine system uh would be the ideal situation and Mm -hmm. that was um something he was most likely drawing upon from the italian context where Mm -hmm. in italy quarantines were enacted in marseille 
mostly enacted, etc. Mm-hmm. And so there was a way in which he was drawing upon other kind of uh, locales outside of the Egyptian context to say that this works and it should be implemented. I mean, we won't have time to get into all the long history of, you know, germ theory and the transition from a miasmatic uh, model to uh, understanding of germs. But how did, uh, you know, if we look at like a, a missionary, he's an educated person, but he's not necessarily uh, a scientist. And he understands this process, this uh, policy that governments, empires like the Ottoman Empire are applying, this policy of quarantine. He understands that it works. How does he understand the workings of this quarantine? Why does in the mind of this person, how do, why does quarantine work? Um, well, I guess in the mind of, or for Antis, um, based, writings, on, yeah. based on his writing, mm-hmm. I can't like go yeah. <laughs> deep into his mind. Um, he It works because of what he's witnessed. Like literally, uh, the accounts that he has of, for example, this one man who was in his neighborhood who had done a self-quarantine up mm-hmm. to a certain point and then eventually was like, well, I need a haircut. And so he stuck his head out and asked the barber to come and like, Mm-hmm. out the window and the barber like cut his hair and then sure enough within a couple of days this person passed away and so there was a way in which seeing people um kind of who were uh-huh. kind of rummaging about in the city um uh quickly acquired this disease was part of the reason why he called for a kind of strict so it's like some bodily contact yeah he, yeah um, and so for him, yeah, it wasn't, he wasn't, um, supporting miasma theory or just like through the air, yeah. but actually if you engage or if you are physically in contact, especially in an intimate way with like mm-hmm. getting your hair cut, then you are going to be, um, susceptible to the plane. And one wonders, you know, clearly he's operating in an environment of, of merchants and missionaries, uh, who are maybe concerned with their, uh, communities actually, you know, there's all sorts of concerns in the colonial uh, world about like, quote unquote, mixing, social mixing and keeping the community separate. So you can see how this matches up with those social hierarchies. But one might also wonder if, if his understandings of plague are not informed by the way people in Egypt understand the disease and its transmission as well. Right. Yeah, and that's actually an important side of the story that goes um, that I talk about in other chapters. That is to say, the um, Egyptian or Tunisian mm-hmm. voice and interpretation of the disease. Like, what what do they think is happening? Yeah. Or how is this disease um, theorized? Um, uh, in the context of, um, for example, Abd al-Rahman um, uh, al-Jabarti, he um, his theory of the plague isn't one that actually. Um, uh, considers it from the perspective of miasma theory. In fact, mm-hmm. when he talks about it, uh, at least for the 1791 plague, he does mention how those who are um, washing bodies could potentially be infected or yeah. households would be infected. So there is a way in which closeness and proximity yeah. uh, lent, lent itself to catching the disease. Um, so there is a kind of um, similarity in the Antis mm-hmm. theory he wasn't calling for strict quarantine. Um, that's not, that wasn't part of the discourse, yeah. but there was an element that disease spreads through direct contact. Uh, uh, and so I think part, there's another layer, which you kind of alluded to. These communities were segregated in mm-hmm. the sense that there was a Jewish quarter, there was a Christian quarter, there mm-hmm. was a merchant foreign merchant quarter. There was, um, but at the same time, people were in the context of trading and the mm-hmm. context of buying things 
mixing together. Sure. So for social life had to be mixed. Um, it wasn't that segregated. Um, and you could enter into someone's community irrespective yeah. of if you had a different uh, religious yeah. or um, ethnic identity. Sure. Yeah. But of course, these, yeah, absolutely. This, this mixing is going on in the colonial setting if we're looking at it from the British perspective uh, or if we look at other contexts, which is precisely why it's, it, it produces anxiety, mm-hmm. right? Because it is this kind of um, possible threat. Mm-hmm. Hi, welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here talking with Edna Bonham about her research on uh, plague in 18th century North Africa. You know, I do want to move back to our discussion and really get, get into this character of George Baldwin that we mentioned. Uh, George Baldwin is a an uh, English merchant uh, living in Cairo. And uh, so he's, he's a merchant. He's not trained as a scientist but he uh you know in the course of these like shocking plague epidemics that he he witnesses he sets about experimenting essentially doing medical experiments or mm-hmm. what we might call so why don't you tell us the story of george baldwin a little so george baldwin who actually has been written about in the context of like political um the political slash pre-colonial history of uh britain and egypt mm-hmm. um was a kind of uh spy slash merchant mm-hmm. for the east india company and he was based in cairo to coordinate um the flow of goods or as they call them packages between south asia and uh europe uh during his duration in egypt uh he was able to kind of meet and speak to uh, local bays and mm-hmm. governors, etc. He lived in the merchant community. Um, he was uh, afforded a kind of an allowance uh, by the East India Company to um, uh, you know have a translator who could help him uh, navigate that space. Um, and he witnessed and uh, the 1791 plague and spoke about that. Um, and the way in which he um, kind of spoke about it and taught um, ahead at least uh, coordinated this thing is that he he wrote his own kind of like uh, essay on the plague. Uh, was this essay published? Was this like a, a thing that circulated at the time? So um, I found the essay in uh, at the British Library in the East India Company records. So this is something he had mailed to um, the company. Uh, and then later the essay was published uh-huh. in a compendium that um like i think in the 1980s uh, of most a lot of his letters but the original was something that he'd pub, um written by hand all right so this essay is something he writes and, and includes in his correspondence with the east india company in his capacity as a merchant slash spy exactly okay and this was his um when i when i saw this handwritten kind of text it starts off with him kind of declaring, oh, I, I think I found the cure to the plague. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I think this, this is going to work. And so he actually starts off by kind of describing electrochemical theory uh-huh. and like how plague is an acid and the way you deal with acids is by doing this other thing and 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 really tries to use the language of the time that you, one could see from like the royal society and the, particularly um, Joseph Priestley uh-huh. and incorporating that in there. He didn't cite 
people from the Royal Society uh-huh. or Joseph Priestley. Um, but this is something that, like that language is there. Mm-hmm. And from there, he kind of describes step by step how he came about finding the cure. Uh, first, um, he claims that um, uh, he experimented with uh, mice and mm-hmm. uh, rats and those that were um, given olive oil um, were not did not contract a plague and those that were not given olive oil did contract a plague. And so he had a control um, experiment whereby okay. olive oil was the treatment. Uh, there was a control group, an experimental group, and this this was the cure. So let's back this up. So he is, so he's reading the scientific works of the time that are being published in these journals, but he himself uh, is not a doctor, right? I think he, he, you, in your paper, you mentioned he explicitly says, I'm not a doctor. Exactly. But I think I might've found the cure for the plague. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, but what he, you know, he's drawing on this body of expert knowledge, but actually essentially what he's doing, if I understand the experiment correctly, is he starts out by, rubbing and pouring olive oil on like you said infected mice mm-hmm. and then he starts putting the olive oil on people mm-hmm. well he suggests to people that they take it and they the ones who did you know do um and when you cons- say take it do you mean ingest it or consume like just consuming it oh, okay. as opposed like people cook with olive oil and so yeah, it's yeah, a yeah. bit funny um that he's describing that that's the cure but he has a he has a logic to it right he, he says that Plague is a, a the, the the buboes or whatever are an acidic substance and oil, just as it's good for it, just as it, it, it counteracts with lemon, mm-hmm. which is acidic, the same will exactly. And so, yeah, his logic is that the oil and the properties of the oil can um, somehow challenge and mitigate uh, the acidic properties of the bubonic plague, um, and for him ingesting it, consuming it or rubbing it on one's body is the way to deal with the disease. Um, However, um, his thesis is not something that one finds in any other text of the time. That is to say people who are theorizing about contagion um, Uh were not saying somehow that olive oil was the cure. So if we think about like um, Mary Wortley who had went to the Ottoman empire Mm -hmm. and British woman who spent time there, uh, one of the things she gathered from the Ottoman context was um, inoculations and uh, immunization and what we now call consider vaccinations as a kind of preventive method for um, dealing with disease. Olive oil was not something that people in the region okay. were seeing as. Well, I was wondering where he was getting this because uh, he says he says it works. He says he's tried it, but like, how did he get the idea? So, you know. I've encountered it in Turkey today and actually I've tried it and I claim that it works. I have no idea if it was totally in my head, but that if you have a skin irritation or something, you can put yogurt on it. Mm. This is something I had never heard in the U S obviously, because yogurt's a totally different thing here, Mm. but this is something I encountered uh, in Turkey. It's not possible that he's getting this idea of putting olive oil on the plague from just what people are doing uh, in, in Egypt is sort of folk, um, that is Curious. possible. So it is possible that like food and uh, food items have been used as a kind of curative uh, uh-huh. method for different kinds of diseases. So if you yeah. go back to Ibn Sina's canon of medicine, um, there's a, one particular section that focuses on um, impotence. And so uh, Ibn Sina's uh, uh, thesis on how to cure impotence is actually through food. Uh-huh. So he says you get 
some sheep testicles, uh-huh. uh, some oil, some yeah. garlic, and nuts. And that, yeah. uh, like consuming that actually, according to Ibn Sina, um, would be a cure to impotence. And there's a very symbolic quality to it, like testicles. Like wood, sure. You know, and that, ingesting that would somehow allow a person to be virile again. Um, the olive oil situation and plague is not something I have seen mm-hmm. in some of these earlier works. Um, yep. I've been going through some of the plague treatises, like by Al-Suyuti and others, Al-Jawazi, um, and even um, looking at a Christian who wrote a little bit on um, the bubonic plague, Dawood uh, Al-Antaki, and uh, in the 16th century, mm-hmm. uh, and really trying to get a sense of okay, does this olive oil come yeah. up in some of this like Christian, uh, Islamic, or even Jewish texts from the, mm-hmm. that that part yep. of the world? And it's that's not the case. I might huh. have to maybe go to a kind of. Um, uh, herbal healer in Cairo and just see, hey, like, yeah, maybe, um, maybe they might know about this method. But thus far in the written material that I've looked at, it has not come up as a, a method of treatment. Well, I found in the case of, of Ottoman doctors, there's sometimes there's there's two separate bodies of knowledge, the, the, the sort of medical knowledge of how things work and when they try to explain it. But there's also all these these recipes, like you're kind of describing the, the many, many recipe uh, books that are passed down with cures and stuff you're saying that olive oil is not mentioned and in, in they're i haven't seen it but i haven't read everything I mean, <laughs> if anyone who's listening knows something about this to be related another thing that i thought of was that sometimes in christianity uh olive oil has a symbolic uh meaning mm. a curative or a pure a pure sort of is taken as a pure substance that you can um administer uh for ritual purposes or whatnot is there any basis there i don't know yeah um I'm I'm just beginning to explore some of the Christian sources, like what I mentioned with Dawud al Antoki. Um, it would be ideal if I knew Coptic to explore some of those records, but um, I'm you know been in conversation with some Coptic uh, scholars in Egypt who are looking at other issues just to see yeah. um, if they have heard about anything, especially with the context of plague. Unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, but most of the texts are liturgical in context uh-huh. and yeah. the Coptic Christian context. And so it's really about devotion, ritual practice. It's not necessarily discussing disease per se. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a bit of a, a long shot to kind of look for uh, allusions or descriptions about the plague. But um, nonetheless, obviously it's important to be in conversations with people who do read the Coptic uh, sources. And, and okay, this is, this is one person's experiments that he did by himself. They're kind of like a side project in his larger um, espionage slash travel, which, which is another very fascinating thing we might not have a chance to talk about. I I remember I heard this uh, lecture by Nabil Matar about travel uh, from the Arab world to Europe or from, from North Africa to Europe. And he talks about how in Europe, this notion that travel and uh, observation, like in the scientific or even the, the spying sense, uh, was something, were, were, were two things that were inherently intertwined. Francis Bacon had written some things on this, how you should travel, and it's to go and learn about things. So again, these merchants, when they're in Cairo, they might have a, there might be some cultural reason why they feel they should try to observe the world around them and experiment with it. But anyway, whether or not this person's individual ideas are meaningful, I, it is important to point out that in the, you know, the history of science and medicine, a lot of the things that have been held up are discoveries. They start out with this kind of ad hoc uh, 
experimentation. I know from the my research on malaria, um, uh, Jesuits uh, in Peru discovered that the what we call quinine, the bark of that tree, uh, could be effective in alleviating uh, malaria because locals there used it for an entirely different purpose, but uh, a disease that also was associated with chills. So the causal relationship was completely wrong, but they somehow discovered this connection by just playing with the substance and it quinine into the well into the 20th century remained the most effective way of dealing with that disease. So one element of this chapter that you didn't necessarily yeah. get to see is the kind of um, the Royal Society of London and the ways in which who gets to be involved in uh-huh. that part, um, society and like what kinds of connections one sure. must have. George Baldwin was never part of it. I went through some of the list of um, members, like who's an official member, and he was not an official member. I'm trying to see um, more closely um, to what extent um, was he rejected officially by um the kind of organizing body and what did it mean for someone like him to um be on the margins of that kind that community um i I don't i don't necessarily want to call this pseudoscience per se because pseudoscience as a term doesn't emerge until much later but um it seems that he didn't fit the criteria of what others were doing because to be to be honest like most of the people who were contributing to these journals didn't necessarily get trained a formal training in science as we understand it uh, as we understand it professionalization of science doesn't happen in, until like the 1920th century and yeah. so uh, at that at, at in the 18th century the kind of being part of that community was more of an informal who do you know what are what's your political connections etc and so his exclusion from that and not being able to publish such a text or maybe other texts, um, it has more to do with his um, outsider status. Yeah. Well, it's a shame that uh, the scientific community didn't take notice that you could just cure the plague with olive oil because indeed, you know, there were subsequent plague epidemics during the 19th century in the Mediterranean and uh, those could have been avoided, obviously. (laughs) Well, the most effective uh, treatment, actually, because and this is something we find out much later, is that you know the bubonic plague uh, uh, emerges from the bacterium Yersinius pestis, and mm-hmm. uh, it as a bacterium antibiotics is the yeah. most effective um, uh, uh, treatment, at least within allopatric medicine. I'm, maybe there's an epistemology of other kinds of treatments that mm-hmm. we're not aware of that could actually cure yeah. it. But um, as someone who was trained in biology, that, yeah. that, that treatment, antibiotics is an effective treatment uh, for the plague uh, circa 2015. <laughs> Well, Edna, through these through these two characters, we've we've only begun to scratch the surface of the complex world uh, of knowledge and uh, scientific practice surrounding uh, plague uh, in North Africa during the 18th century. The different engagement of um, both uh, U- uh, European travelers as well as um, uh, Islamic uh, forms of uh, scientific inquiry during that time. Uh, Looking forward to finding out more about 
your research as it as it comes forth this year and i, I wish you the best of luck with the writing and uh, i want to thank you again for for presenting your work with us today oh thank you very much i really enjoyed this conversation now, for those who are listening and want to learn more about what we've been discussing today, we have a bibliography on our website. Edna has supplied a complete list of the, the latest research uh, on plague in the Mediterranean, as well as uh, history of medicine, history of science, works that were mentioned or alluded to in this podcast. The website, outofmysterypodcast.com, is also a space where you can leave your comments and questions and also get in touch with our Facebook group. Uh, now over 20,000 followers uh, tuning in each week to our ongoing interviews. I also want to make a plug for our series on history of science curated by Nir Shafir. Uh, this is the latest installment of that series, but you can find the other ones uh, on our website uh, and subscribe to that series uh, separately through iTunes. I want to thank you all for listening and invite you to join in next time. And until then, take care.